0: Hello, and welcome to The Walk Around Podcast, powered by A Group. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. Our goal is to share the actionable insights, trends, and leadership principles that are influencing the retail automotive landscape today. I am one of your hosts, Mark Spoto, as always joined by Elliot Shore, and our guest today is Alan Haig. Alan is the founder and president of Haig Partners, Alan has been involved in the purchase or sale of more than 350 dealerships with a value of over $5.1 billion. His background includes serving as the Senior Vice President of Corporate Development at AutoNation. While there, he served on their executive committee, wrote their original business plan for AutoNation's new car division and led dealership acquisitions. You know, Elliot, to say that Alan is an industry expert could be an understatement. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, The Hague Report, easily one of the first reports I started reading when I got into the business, you know, nearly 20 years ago and um, still read it to this day. It is required reading the day it comes out. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. You are going to learn a ton on today's episode. So let's get to it. Let's take a walk around with Alan Hague. Well, we are thrilled to have Alan Hague with us, the founder and president of Hague Partners, author of The Hague Report. Yes. If, you, if you're not watching or reading or listening to the Hague Report, you are really missing out. Yeah,
1: I know I've been a casual observer of the Hague Report for many, many years, always one of the best reports in the industry because there's no, uh, it is what it is. It's the truth
0: is out there, right? And uh, the truth will set you free. That's right. And if there is any headline right now in the automotive business that's not related to, you know, inventory challenges or EV, the hottest topic right now is buy sells, and we have the authority. So, Alan, welcome to the Walk Around Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, well, it's my pleasure to
2: join you, gentlemen, and uh, I'm always interested in talking about M&A and hopefully learning some things as
0: well. All right. Well, let me throw some stats out there, because you obviously know these stats, Alan, since you published them, but maybe some of our listeners don't know. The average publicly owned dealership made just over $6 million in 2021. That's over three times higher than in 2019. Over 640 dealerships traded hands in 2021. That's more than double the number in 2019. And listen to this, public company spending on acquisitions was over $9 billion in 2021. That is over 11 times higher than the average between 2015 and 2019. So Alan, we have to ask you just right away, are we in some sort of a bubble here when it comes to dealer valuations? Like, where do you see this going? Those are definitely the highlights.
2: I think that last year was a special circumstance. It was a combination of factors that led to this explosion in dealership values, explosion in in M&A activity. The first was the pandemic caused a shortage of supply and a boom in demand. So Mm. consumers had a lot of money in their pockets. They couldn't go on trips and they wanted to go out and do something. And so they went out to look for cars, vehicles. And when they arrived at the lots, every month they saw a shrinking inventory. And so the pricing power flipped to dealers. So dealers were able to charge MSRP in some cases higher for their products and at the same time they had lower costs, lower inventory carrying costs, lower advertising costs. They had reduced the size of their workforces when the pandemic first hit and didn't need to rehire them when, when the demand came back. So you had this perfect storm of dealership profits of higher gross profits and lower expenses. So we saw profits triple right. pretty, pretty much everybody, private dealer, public dealer. Plus for the private guys, they had this PPP loan forgiveness money, which was, you know, kind of like, like not just a cherry on top, but the whole jar of cherries on top (laughs) because the average dealer got a couple or a few million dollars of PPP money on top of their record high profits. Um, So you had this big uh, explosion of profits that made buyers want more. Hey, this business is great. I've got an excellent business model. When the new car business dries up, my my margins go up. We had a recession, as you guys may recall, about 12 years ago, and uh, dealers did far better than factories or almost any other part of the auto retail model. So it's an excellent business model. So along with the rising profits and the belief that good times are going to continue for the future, buyers are willing to pay a lot more for stores. Right. And then the combination of higher prices and the fear of higher taxes in 2021, led a lot of people who own dealerships who didn't have a certain future in auto retail to say, this is the time. It'll be the maximum price I get for my stores and the lowest taxes I can see myself paying on the gains. So a lot of people came into the market to sell their businesses last year, including a handful of extremely large dealership groups. And that led to this record amount of spending by the public companies, but also private buyers are really active. So it was just an incredible year for for everyone who participated, buyers, sellers, advisors like like our firm. This year, I think we're going to see the market be somewhere between normal times (laughs) and Cray Cray times which
1: is what we had last year <laughs> pretty wide span uh, there yeah. yeah i mean it's yeah. you know it's interesting because you can't turn on the tv or open the wall street journal without some sort of article about the franchise dealer you know whether that's you know uh, the uh, more a manufacturer taking a more direct approach with ev vehicles whether it's you know a direct to consumer ev oem you know sort of circumventing the franchise system and then, you know, there's just sort of other economic pressures going on. But, you know, I guess my question would be, how much of this activity do you see is driven by the dynamics of the industry in terms of the, the franchise dealers place in this value chain of vehicle sales? Do you see dealers selling because they don't see a future for the franchise dealer?
2: I think that people have been predicting the demise of the small time dealer for decades. Right. I first got in this business in 1996. I was hired by Wayne Heisinga and Steve Burrard at AutoNation to write a business plan for the new car dealership company. There was already a group of people working on the used car superstores. Right. And in that business plan that I wrote, which I did with my business school training, I talked about economies of scale, national brands, best practices, bigger inventories, and and dealers that had those strengths would take market share from the mom and pops, which would slowly die out. That's what happened in almost every other retail business that I know of. Right. And the truth is, none of what I predicted came true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you lived to tell the tale. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm living to tell it every day, uh, right. and I think it's, it's for a number of reasons, but one is just the business model is really well-suited for family ownership, hmm. because there are almost no economies of scale. I, if I own a store in eastern North Carolina that sells 30 new units a month, I pay the same for that product as what AutoNation or Lithia or Penske is paying for that product from the factory.
1: Right. Interesting.
2: And so there's no, the more you buy, the same you pay, which is different than any other industry. There are some changes that I see happening now that I think are creating some concerns with many families. Yeah. And if you look at the Lithia business model, which I think will be adopted by probably most, if not all of the publicly traded retailers, it's that their end game is to have a physical dealership within at least and or so miles of every person in this country right. hopefully a lot closer and a digital platform There's this called driveway yep where they'll be able to sell or service any customer within 100 miles of their dealerships wow and that by having this national chain linked together that's convenient from a brick standpoint but also really convenient from a click standpoint they're going to be able to offer consumers Every vehicle that that the customer could conceive of, they're going to have it somewhere in inventory and they're going to be able to provide the experience that the the customer wants. You want to come in and see the cars? We got you here. We got physical footprint. You don't want to come in. You just want to buy online. You know, we'll have this great photography and money back guarantee and we'll ship the car to you and we can do the paperwork online. We don't have to interact at all. They're going to have that that quick strategy, which Carvana is is doing so well right now. Sure. Um, And so I think that, you know, if I think about that business plan, all of a sudden now, maybe the mom and pop dealers are a little bit threatened (laughs) because the average dealer in this country, let's say you're a domestic store, you know, you're probably selling 50 new and 50 used a month. So you might have 300 units in inventory, maybe today less, right? But so how do I broadcast to people in my area about my inventory. How do I pay enough mark for marketing for one little store compared to Lithia or Autonation or Sonic or Group 1 that can spread those advertising costs over hundreds of stores and hundreds of millions of people. Hmm. All of a sudden I think it gets a little bit harder for the mom and pop to compete. Well, because if I'm a customer and, and I'm sorry I'll just say this one thing. Used to be customers would drive down to Dealer Row and dealers wanted to have a lot of frontage so they could show their inventory. Now I'm holding up my phone. This is a podcast, people can't tell, but I'm holding up my phone, <laughs> which is about six inches, you know, of, of, of screen. And people are looking for inventory by tapping in letters onto a keyboard. And that's going to show them the inventory that's available. And the bigger dealers are more likely to show up first with their inventory. So customers are going to be steered towards bigger operators versus
0: the mom and pop operators. So Alan, you know, we hear and we talk a lot about the the customer experience when it comes to the purchase process in a dealership. When you when you talk about this business model that that might be growing in Lithia and others expanding, do you still see an opportunity for a, a small town or a mom and pop type dealer to differentiate themselves when it comes to customer experience? Yes. Yes, because uh, I'll give you an example.
2: Many years ago when I was with AutoNation, Automation was working on what's the best way to sell a car to a customer. And uh, they did an extensive study with some of the smartest people in the business, and they came back. Um, this was at a period where you actually negotiated the price of a new car as opposed to just, you know, <laughs> telling the customer. And they said, um, you, you give, you do three pencils on the vehicle, and then, and then you're done. You let the customer walk. And our, our friends in California rolled their eyes, you know, groaned and moaned and said, there's no way, Hmm. you know, it's a cultural thing here in Southern California. People bring their families in and negotiate a cardio to see how you negotiate. Right. You know, if you did three pencils and dropped it and walked away, you'd offend the customer. Right. You've got to work a lot harder to make that sale in Southern California. Now, on the other hand, we have a client, a new client who has done extremely well by Doing marketing to charitable organizations in their community, hmm. and they've been doing it for 20 years, and they've generated so much goodwill in the community that people say, if I'm ever going to buy a truck, I'm coming to buy it from you. Mm-hmm. So they've generated that kind of loyalty. And and you know, they what's interesting is um, the industry knowledge is, hey, you should shift all your marketing to digital. That's way hmm. more effective, way more efficient. But this family has discovered that they create more loyalty with their customers by giving money to the animal shelters, to the women's shelters, to the school system, to the police athletic league, all those kind of things that are uh, the type of charities that are hard for public companies to access, right? right? The local guys. Sure. That I see families that pursue unconventional uh, marketing strategies like that. These are the leading dealers in their state this franchise that they own. So not just, Uh they're not just like doing okay. They are the best dealers of their franchise in this entire state. So what's fun about this industry is there really, there's not one way
1: to succeed. For sure. You know, it was funny. I was just thinking the same thing as you said that it, it really is. And you must see so many different types of dealerships each year, you know, going to market, it must make it extremely difficult in a sense to value uh, because there, you're right. There isn't one way to succeed. You know, you you could have two dealers that are six miles apart on the same highway, and they're doing it completely differently, but both succeeding. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious going back to this, and we'll, we we want to get into this in a second about your background. You made the leap from you know corporate guy to entrepreneur. Many of our listeners are are dealership associates, and um, who dream of one day having their name on the building as well. And so, you know, based on everything we're saying, you know, with valuations the way they are, that dream used to be a reality where you could work hard enough, be a sales guy, become a GM at one point, and then eventually you could get your name on the door. Do you still see deals like that going through or is that dream slowly and slowly becoming a non-reality for the budding entrepreneur in the industry?
2: In many cases, it is a disappearing opportunity, um, particularly for certain franchises. Huh. Toyota, for instance, has always been a strong franchise, but many dealers told me that during the pandemic, that franchise really differentiated itself amongst its competitors hmm. by its partnership with its dealers. Right, And uh, they did a good job with inventory as well. Um, so the value of an average Toyota store today is, far exceeds the ability of most individuals that haven't amassed a lot of wealth to be able to acquire. Sure. But there are other, there are other opportunities for those people that want to own stores. And I would say smaller markets and lesser franchises. Hmm. And this is no, this is no slant against the product or the people who work at these companies. But for instance, you can acquire a Mazda store in a, Single point, smaller market, for not vast amounts of money.
1: Right.
2: It's going to require you to relocate in most ca- most cases, which is not easy or popular for, you know, whether sure. it's a, the man or the woman that's the general manager says, "Hey, I saved some money, and I heard about the store that's up in you know 100 miles from here. We're going to move our kids and move away from the family and friends." That's that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but I think that those are still opportunities available for first-time business owners, Um, there are also a a very small handful of organizations in this country where their whole business model is about bringing talent into their organization, training that talent, evaluating that individual to see, hey, do their values align with our values? And and if they feel that they have a, a winner on their hands, a partner, they then seek an acquisition. And they'll fund the partner's investment in that acquisition. Hmm. Once that partner has invested every last penny, they can into that deal. And there, there are just two organizations I know that that do that. And then there are other larger ones, like uh, AMSI is maybe the best example. Yep, I estimate they have 150, 170 dealerships. I think they have partners in every single one of those. Right. And um, those those people that work in those organizations were chosen from successful general manager ranks. And were offered equity, not majority, you know, less than half. Sometimes their names go up on the store if they've proven themselves over time. So there are there are paths for ownership for individuals who don't have vast pocketbooks, but it's a lot harder than it used to be.
0: Yeah, tell us tell us a bit about your journey, Alan, because as Elliot mentioned, you made that leap from from corporate to you know creating your own niche in terms of the buy sell market. How did you had that happen for you well
2: i started my career in investment banking and um, the one lesson i learned from that is it's a really hard job <laughs> It's <bunch> <laughs> like crazy uh, so all you the car business well all you do is talk about money when you when you're in the investment banking business you know and and um, so after business school i wanted to get into working at, at a company and uh, see what corporate America was like. So I joined the Blockbuster organization. We sold that to, to um, Viacom, and, and Wayne and Steve started Blockbuster. I mean, uh, AutoNation.
1: Just at the right so, time? Good. That's right. So uh, <laughs> so my,
2: my job there was buying stores, and I didn't know anything about the car business. They actually teamed me up with a former Southeast Toyota executive, a guy named, um, named Jeff, and together, we started knocking on doors. And then Mike Maroney came on board. And, of course, he knows almost every dealer in the country and was a fantastic person for me to, to work with and eventually for. And so, in um, the first time I was at AutoNation, we, we bought hundreds of, well, not hundreds, but dozens of stores. We went from zero revenue to like $12 billion, I think, in about huh. a year and a half, wow. two years. Uh, but then I could tell that AutoNation had some headwinds coming with the used car superstores. It just didn't have a good business model at that point. So I, I left and went back to investment banking and then Mike called and says, Hey, we got a good company. We want to make a great company sold off the rental car companies and the finance companies, shut down the uh the, dealers, the um, used car stores. And so we started growing again and uh, we bought 14 stores, but we sold 56 and then the recession hit. So AutoNation was basically out of the M&A business for a while, right? No one was buying or selling anything. So some of it was just the circumstances as opposed to me saying, hmm, now I want to go start, you know, go back to banking. Um, but I, I switched to the buy, to the sell side at that point. So I bought a lot of stores when I was on Audition. But as I mentioned, the last job I had there, we last time I was there, we sold 56. Huh. So, you know, sometimes when you're selling a broken store, it's a pretty wet noodle you're pushing. <laughs>
1: you <know? laughs>
2: you're, you're really trying to convince people. Uh, and so I thought it was was fun in some ways it's a little bit more creative than on the buy side the buy side is you run the numbers to see if it hits your your company's return on investment criteria right and the sell side you got to figure out like all right well, what asset do i have what are the strengths what are the weaknesses how do i address those and so for me i sort of preferred being on the sell side um and so i, I joined another investment banking firm and i was there for about six years And then I decided to leave and start Hague partners. And I was confident in the market conditions at that time, right? I'd saved some money. So I knew I could weather a short, you know, no, no salary for a couple years. If I needed to, (laughs) uh, one of my former teammates also joined me, Nate Klobaha and, um, in our first year we, we closed three transactions. Hmm. Uh, one really nice uh, Ford store in Fort Worth. Uh, one small group of truck dealerships in Tennessee and one group of luxury stores outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And, uh, and the rest for that point on, Yeah, from that point on we were trying hard to find the best talent we can find in this industry that that knows the dealership world, that know has a great reputation with dealers and has familiarity with
0: with buy sells. Well, again, we're talking with Alan Haig of Hague Partners, who is uh, just the complete authority on the buy-sell industry. And his current Hague report is out now. If you have not checked out any previous reports, now is the time to jump in and really get some insights into what's happening in the dealer world.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. We're a uh, super interesting, interesting background, the, um, you know. If you were um, you know, one of these associates who were thinking about making the move towards one of these lower markets and um, or, or maybe a smaller market with a smaller brand to get their feet start, you know, what would be the brand you would target? I know you mentioned Mazda, would Mazda be the, would be the brand? I, I say Mazda because it's, it's one that
2: very few people target. And so therefore mm-hmm. the, the multiple of earnings that you can buy a Mazda store is low. Interesting. Um, if you if you have if you're a talented operator, you will be able to have a big impact on that store, right? Because in all likelihood, if I if there's a dealership group, for instance, and they've got five stores, they're going to put their probably the most experienced and talented people in the Toyota store, you know, and people <laughs> who are just learning the business they might put in the Mazda store. Uh, but a talented GM can go into a Mazda store, or I'll say different franchise could be a Ford store. Something else that is not going to bring a lot of blue sky because of the size of the market it's in. Hmm. And you can transform it either, you know, if I'm boosting the use to new ratio or, or, or putting that product on customers' shopping list where they might have ignored it. Um, but there are other franchises, too, that that people don't necessarily seek. Well, they're on the top of the list. Um, the domestic stores can be great in a lot of rural areas because people buy trucks, that's for sure. Problem is sometimes there are a lot of domestic stores in small areas, so sales volume is pretty low. I like the domestics because they have the trucks, they have great fixed ops business. The multiples are relatively low. There are a lot more Chrysler stores and there are Mazda stores too. So it's kind of easier to find one. Right. Um, But I think that's, you know, if somebody had, I mean, it, for, it's even a small store, yeah. it's going to cost millions. Right. right. Uh, oh, yeah. Real estate and the blue sky and the fixed assets. Even the smallest store today, you're probably talking about $10 million worth of investment. Now mm-hmm. you can you can borrow maybe 80% of the of real estate and maybe half of the blue sky. So you, you can get financing, but it's still people are going to have to save millions to buy their first door
1: are, are people you know in this market you know we mentioned dealer profits have tripled you know the last few years are, are your buyers discounting those profits going forward you know are they saying yeah i know they're making that now but let's cut that in half for our modeling um or do you see people trying to take these profits and saying no we can grow this even further
2: it all depends. That's the Harvard Business yeah. School response. <laughs> I'll give you just a kind of range of answer. I mean, in general, we find people comfortable taking a a three-year average of pre-tax profits and then applying a normal multiple for that, hmm. that franchise. So for instance, the three years is now 2019, so you have one year pre-pandemic. Right. 2020, and then the last twelve months, which now would include the first quarter of twenty twenty two, and I think in general people feel like, hey, the average of those three years may look a lot like the average of the next three years.
1: Mm. Right. right? That so, makes, that makes sense. That's as reasonable as I guess any. Who knows? You know, these days yeah. it's it's hard. It's a, it's an interesting business to it be is. buying and selling dealerships right now. So
0: on that note,
2: can do some. Can, fork- I, can I can I just interrupt you there? But of I course, do, that's the general. Now the flip side of that is we have some of the the best buyers in the country in terms of their experience and their capital that are looking now for large transactions hmm. and in many cases we want to pay eight or nine times current earnings Wow, wow, the right platform and the right market because they have so much capital because they want to grow in big chunks that some of these dealership um targets are going to bring substantially more than what our, the formula I just mentioned would indicate.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And that's what, that's really what I was getting at. So thank you for explaining that. Cause I do see in the same vein, you know, groups that are looking for those mega deals and are willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, from some of the customers we have at the J A group, you know, some of the insights we have. And it's pretty fascinating because you see range. I've never seen a bigger range of perspective by smart people on, um, you know, both sides kind of, and it's really kind of hard to discern who's right because there's so much that's different today in the last two years, three years, it's changed and how the model, the business model of dealerships goes forward It's just the question of inventory is a huge question. And will inventory levels ever come back? Do you think inventory levels will come back to where they were before?
2: So I asked this question in a different way to, so for instance, we were marketing a dealership group. This is a Florida group, highly profitable. And the franchise mix included a lot of um, domestic and midline import stores. Hmm. Those are the brands that often were making between $800 and $1,500 a copy front-end gross before the pandemic. Right. Right? Excluding F&I. And then when the pandemic hit, those stores enjoyed a higher spike in margins than the luxury dealers did.
1: Hmm. You know, the
2: luxury guys were already making $6,000 a copy front-end gross, including other vehicle income. They, maybe they went to eight or 9000 so their margins went up 50%. But a Kia store, for instance, has probably quadrupled its margins. Right. And a domestic store has probably tripled. So (laughs) I was, you know, at this point, that dealership group was making, let's say it was making 30 and and combined pre-tax profit. And the buyer says, where do you think this is gonna land? And I was like, well, I think that eventually the supply will come back and, but there's a lot of pent up demand. So we'll sell more units, maybe at a little bit lower margin Right. The total variable gross, I think, is going to be the same or higher. And he said, BS. <laughs> that's not going to happen because the factories are going to overproduce as soon as they can. It's going to crater the margins and we're going to right back to where we were. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's a level of cynicism that I don't hear often in our industry because most people are pretty optimistic. Optimistic, yeah. Yeah. But this, was, this was amongst the most, you know, experienced uh, buyers out there. But I, I think that the longer this goes on with low inventories and high profits for the factories, I think that they and their investors are going to develop some pretty strong muscle memory here. Right. Just like we saw, you may recall, this is a different industry, but it's a little bit analogous. The companies that were in the oil and gas business, the fracking business, they invested a lot in more production capacity, but they weren't returning a lot of capital to shareholders. Hmm. And their investors eventually said, "Hey, stop investing and start returning." And I wonder if auto investors won't be the same way. Hmm. Why do you want to build that new plant? Why Why right. is more going to make you more right? right? Why don't you Why don't you close a plant? You know, yeah. and, and uh, you will you know maybe that kind of argument. So I think my sense is that we won't go back to a Ford dealership with a hundred day supply. Right. We won't go back to a Toyota store with 45-day supply. My guess is we're going to have about, a th- if I had to guess, about a third less inventory out there. Plus, we will train some of the customers to come in and order their cars, right. either online or at the dealership. Because they, they, just, they discovered, well, I didn't know I could really do that before. And maybe I can wait three months or six months. And then I get exactly the vehicle I want. And I'll pay a little bit more for it. Versus yeah. taking what's on the lot.
1: No, it's, it's, you know, it's, I mean, the name of the game for the OEMs was market share. I mean, that was what they talked about. It's all about, what was all about market share. And I think the question you're raising is, can the manufacturers be okay with whatever market share they settle into? Well, you um, have, you,
2: know, you got a pretty good case study with Nissan, you know, Carl's right. going pushed uh, Nissan hard for more market share in this country. And in my opinion, he broke that company. He'll claim it wasn't him or whatever else, but I think his fingerprints were all over the stair-step incentives in this country that killed Nissan residual values, killed dealer interest in the franchise. There was an enormous flight of capital and talent from Nissan stores to just about every other franchise. That could be another good buy, by the way, is a Nissan store because they're not over dealered. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe today they are because their volume has fallen a lot, but long-term, they're not over dealered. Um, so you look at Nissan, you're like, hey, oversupply kills. It's a very good example of that. Flip side is Subaru. That's, you know, always right. been a popular brand. The product is, if you look at Nissan, I mean, Subaru cars, they're not, you know, uh, not many will be in museums.
0: Right. Uh, <laughs>
2: right. That's a great way to put it. But yeah. I, that's what the customer wants, you know, and, and um, they've done a wonderful job Creating a demand that slightly exceeds the supply. For
1: sure. And that's been
2: good for the customer because they have good residual values. It's been good for the dealer because they've had pretty good margins, not great margins, but pretty good margins, uh, but really low, relatively low costs. Yeah. The factories benefited because they haven't had to advertise or incentivize those vehicles to sell them in in great numbers. Right. So I think there's some good case studies. If if I'm a if I'm a CEO of a publicly traded company. It's going to be hard for me to propose a new, a new uh, brand because I want to grow my market share or a new factory, right? as opposed to how do I optimize what I have now? In fact, I think you see companies like Mercedes saying, no, I'm not going to do an A-class again. I'm not going to do all these variants. I don't really make much money from those products. I want to focus more on the higher margin products. So less is more.
0: Yeah. Well, Alan, we love that you're forecasting right now for us because we're going to put that forecasting to the test. <laughs> we we do a little segment here on on the podcast called A Sure Thing, and our own Elliot Shore here. You know, he has a lot of opinions and he he uh, he gathers a lot of thoughts in his travels. So he's going to give you a few hot takes, and we want you to to challenge those or validate them and uh, and see see how it goes. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, Elliot, All right.
1: go for it. All right, Alan. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, so we're going to jump right in here. And um, and I believe that by 2025, you will see the first dealer group cross 1,000 stores. First large dealer group cross 1,000 stores. Sure thing or not a sure thing?
2: Not a sure thing.
1: Really? Why? So... You know, we, you can't open to Automotive News without hearing about the the publicly traded groups stating about their plans for uh, doubling revenue, tripling revenue over the next few years by acquisition. So why do you think a thousand store group is not on the horizon? Framework agreements. Hmm. So the many- uh, yeah. The bigger you get, the harder it is to keep growing. Right. So where do you think if you had to peg it? I, we won't hold you to this, Alan, but- um, <laughs> What? How big do you think the publics can grow, uh, in reality, before those framework agreements start to really just put locks on where they can go?
2: I think that they can continue to grow a lot. Um, I forget where the store count is now. Maybe Lithia has three hundred and thirty yeah. stores, three hundred fifty stores, something like that. So you were talking about them tripling uh, between now and the next three years. Uh, I'll. I will. I will cook you a delicious meal and, and buy a nice bottle of wine. <laughs> uh, All right. If that happens. And if it doesn't happen, I'm coming to your um, killer customer. I mean, killer uh, associate cafe. All right. and right. I'll, <laughs> I'll enjoy lunch paid for by your organization. All right. Okay. Like, it.
1: mark it on the calendar, you, Alan, you know, okay. I like to
0: keep score here. Yeah, so May,
1: May 9th, 2025, <laughs> you and I will have a bet to settle all right so it's a vet all right so according to my score you're over for one Over one so let's keep going shoot okay all right well we talked a little bit about this one earlier but now i'm going to put you on the money here i believe by 2030 the mom and pop dealership will be ancient history 2030 so a little bit of a more of a runway there sure thing or not a sure thing
2: no way possible No
1: way possible. I love it.
2: I love it. Over
1: two. Over two. Tell us more, Alan.
2: Well, the model I mentioned is highly resilient. And um, even if the public companies could hit 1,000 per location, you're talking about 6,000 stores, that's less than half the stores in the country.
1: So, yeah. So, there's room for more. There's plenty of
2: room for the small town dealer to thrive over the long term if they do some of the things... That the larger firms do ben. make it customer friendly. Yep. I mentioned um, local marketing to create loyalty amongst their customers to get them to come in, as opposed to just go on their phone and shop.
0: Good. Now that's uh, a hot take, Elliot. Right there. That's 0 for 2. 0 for 2. All right, we're gonna go All right. for the
1: last and final we're gonna go for the win. Here. For the win here. For the win. Okay. All right, Alan. I, I know you know. Looking into your background, you know, certainly very well educated. Uh, have uh, attended some of the finest institutions in the United States, including the University of North Carolina. Um, and, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, um, you know, the big rivalry between UNC and Duke, uh, you know, took a little hit this year in the sense that um, Coach K is no longer going to be coaching on the other sideline there against uh, uh, your, uh, your Blue Devils, and I mean, against your uh, Tar Heels, excuse me. And so I believe that Duke will not win another national championship in the next 20 years, 20 years, because they do not have Coach K anymore. Sure thing or not a sure thing. And before you answer, don't forget, you had a lot of Tar Heels listening to this.
2: I think they'll win another championship.
1: You oh, do. he went against the grain. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have a lot of faith in the, uh,
0: this the succession just, plan. This just illustrates what a practical thinker Alan is. He's, yes. he's not going to go he's with not? the popular answer. Of, right. of course, they'll never win a national yeah. championship.
2: I think um, if you look at that school, the history of their program, it's far greater than Coach K. Coach K was an incredible coach and had a great record for them, et cetera. Uh, but he announced his retirement at the beginning, really before the season started. Right. Uh, which was a very not UNC kind of thing to do because it was this year long kind of ode to Coach K. Right. Uh, which meant it, it was even sweeter for the Tar Heels to take him down two out of the three times we faced him. Right. Uh, but, but who's but the, the facts are uh, Duke enters next season with the number one recruiting class in the country. Hmm. That's right. Maybe Coach K has something to do with that, but Coach Shire probably had more to do with that because those kids, when they signed, they knew they weren't coming to play for Coach K. They were coming to play for Coach Shire yeah. and the Duke Blue Devils. So when a team gets the number one class in the country with a
0: brand new coach. Well, UNC has some some top players coming back for a second run, right? They're going to run it back. So it'll be it'll be exciting to see that rivalry. Yeah, for no, sure. Definitely. I mean,
2: we have um, we have enjoyed the beginning of Coach Hubert Davis's tenure, which to me, the, the changing of the guard of coaching and college sports happened because of these change in the NCAA rules where athletes are now allowed to be compensated for their likenesses and right. mm-hmm. even going to a school.
1: Yeah, nice. that that's the most fascinating thing, because, I mean, I was reading Texas a ms football recruiting class spent The booster spent 30 to $40 million on their class. And that's it's just going to absolutely change the game. There's There's no doubt about that type of money going to players. It's going to change everything, I believe.
2: So I think the coaches that will thrive in the future in this new system are those that are going to inspire and and love their players Hmm. more than scare their players into performance.
1: More like an NBA model more exactly and yeah, yeah. Nice and so i think college yeah.
2: i love our new coach coach davis you know he played at carolina many years ago he played in the nba for i forget 10 plus years and he's been sitting quietly on that bench as a good assistant not saying anything for a long time but he's learned a lot and um he really took a team that uh, struggled in the first half of the season and never gave up on them and inspired them and they had an incredible run far probably greater than their talent should have led them and to me, it's a great example of, of, of the power of leadership, what an individual can do. But he had a quote, hmm. which is, you know, he felt that Carolina basketball hadn't been relevant for a while and he wanted to change that. And it's about the program. That's one thing that I think we love about Coach, Coach Davis too. It's not about me, 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 I did this. It's, you know, the Carolina team, the Carolina program. Yeah. So that's like, I think all of us business leaders need to learn that Times have changed for for our businesses and our employees. You know, you can't yell at people and scare people anymore. You, you really have to hopefully set a good example and and uh, and work hard. And, and as a team, you can succeed far greater than a star system, which, in my opinion, you know, is is a legacy of of yesteryear.
0: Right. What a great. Yeah, what
1: what a great great, way to end. There you have it from Alan. Alan himself, succession planning keeps the value high into the future. And a team system, what worked before is not going to work going forward. Exactly. All about the team and uh, valuing the team. I love it, Alan.
0: Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the walk around. We we really appreciate uh, your time, your insights. And again, if you haven't checked out the Hague Report, it is out now, the current latest edition. Um, it's just filled with, with great data and great information about the, the automotive business.
1: Always a must read yeah. the day it comes out,
0: always. Thank you, Alan. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Alan. Elliot, Mark, thank you for having me. Whether you're a dealer owner, general manager in sales or service, or just starting your automotive journey, you're sure to pick up some actionable insight from the Walkaround Podcast powered by Jamin and Group. Be sure to keep listening, keep up with the leaders who are influencing the automotive landscape today.
1: We really appreciate you joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to. Go ahead and check out jmanagroup.com resources. We have a ton of helpful free resources for everyone out there. I'm Elliot Shore. You can find me on LinkedIn at uh, Elliot Shore, S-C-H-O-R. And in the words of the great Dennis Morton, be good out there, but if you can't be good, be careful.